I want to introduce a, um, a friend of ours that's going to be uh, preaching this morning. Um, Jonathan Brooks, Pastor Jay, as he's known, is a uh, pa- pastor's Canaan Community Church in the Inglewood neighborhood of Chicago. He's uh, been a friend of Christ City, been a friend of uh, mine and Lisa's for a number of years in our intersection with the Christian Community Development Association. He is also author of a book called Church Forsaken, which you can pick up after church if you want. It's right out there. He'll sign a copy to you or to some stranger if you want to buy a stranger a copy, too. Um, he uh, has, uh, for me, has displayed in so many ways uh, what it means to live uh, faithfully and graciously in one place over a long period of time of both how to pastor a congregation and chaplain a neighborhood. And so I just want uh, to invite him up and uh, church, if we can give him a Christ City welcome as he comes to um, preach the word for us. No, so I take off off the pulpit, like, oh no, it's on. And so, you know, my mom is like, no, baby, don't go. You're the pastor, you gotta. Next thing I know, I look up and Mark has his gun out and he pulls it out and he shoots in the air, bow, bow, bow. And everybody stops in. The guys take off across the boulevard and my guys looking around like, what just happened? And all I could think in my mind was, we have got to figure out why that was okay why our neighbors felt like this was an appropriate time to handle whatever the problem was. As if this place was not sacred, there was nothing about it that they were connected to. And that's our fault. And I, and I, and I can remember saying, man, forget preaching salvation and, and, and trying to be successful. Man, skip that. We're not even going to survive over here unless something changes. And from that moment on, my mindset was, how can this church be connected to the people that we're supposed to be serving? So yeah, my first six weeks as a pastor were probably different than anyone I know. But that's who and what made me who I am today. Can you hear me? Yes. All right. Um, I forgot the like gloating part was at the end. Should have cut that off. <laughs> anyway. But, um, Thank you so much to uh, Car City and Pastor Matt and just Justin and, and to uh, all of my friends. Um, I'm just thankful to be here. And uh, I'm always excited uh, to be back with friends and to be back with family and uh, to be in our nation's capital. Um, it's an interesting time to be here. And uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm really thankful for the opportunity to share with you. And I'm gonna sh- I'm gonna be real simple today. Like I, I've been working on a letter that I I've been writing to uh, people in my community um, and to uh, folks who have visited my congregation or my neighborhood and are asking me questions. And, and I want to try out the letter on y'all. I call it a letter to my fellow exiles. And as we go through this passage in Jeremiah 29, I want us to walk through it together, kind of verse by verse, verses four through seven. But Um, I want to juxtapose a little bit of what my life has, how I've experienced this passage through my life and connect it and hopefully be able to have you walk out of here and be able to glean some insight from it as well. So before I get into my letter, I just want to pray a little bit. ask God's presence to lead us here today to open all of our hearts and our minds so that even my message, which comes all the way from Chicago, will resonate thoroughly here uh, in D.C. and at Christ City. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful. We are thankful that we are in this place together. 
And when I say this place, I don't just mean inside this school building. I mean in this world that you have created for us. To bring you glory through the way we live together, the way we love together, and the way we learn together. So God, help us to live together. To think not only of ourselves, but to remember that we live in a world full of people who you love. And that every decision we make and everything that we think about and do has effects on those around us. May we never forget that we're tied together. May this word be your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So, a letter to my fellow exiles. In verse 4 of Jeremiah 29, the passage starts off like this. This is what the Lord Almighty the God of Israel says to all those whom I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now the letter starts like this, to my fellow exiles. A member of my community once told me that there are only two kinds of people who live here. People who have nowhere else to go and people who have no other place they'd rather be. Now that made sense to me because just about anyone who had been deemed successful in our community had moved away never to return. Many of the people who stayed around are here because they have fond memories or because they reminisce about the good old days all week long. Well, I write to you as somebody who understands both categories. Once a young man itching to get as far away from my Inglewood community on the south side of Chicago, now a grown man who loves my neighborhood passionately, y'all, and couldn't imagine living anywhere else. Jeremiah wrote a letter to Israel encouraging them to trust God even while being exiled to a place that they did not want to be. After reading it, I realized that maybe I felt the same way about my neighborhood as Israel felt about Babylon. Many of you may also be defining your worth in the same way I did, you know, Success and blessings hinges on upward mobility, getting out of the place where you feel exiled. Well, what's interesting is in verse 5, God gives them the opposite message they expect. In verse 5, God gives them the message that says, build houses and live in them. Surprisingly, this is the exact opposite of the way that I thought Exiles should think. Build houses and live in them? Come on, man. But he's encouraging them not to abandon the place in which God sent them, but he's encouraging them to live in it, to build it. And I encourage the same for you. Think about this. Even if you find yourself in a place in which you would have chosen or not chosen, the expectation of God is still that you make yourself at home. Jeremiah. He reminds us that God is not telling us that when we make ourselves at home, that we're necessarily going to change anything. I hate to bust your bubble because I'm in the nation's capital and we're about action. What is the next actionable step, Pastor Jay? <laughs> but I'm here to let you know that sometimes there are no correct action steps. It is to be present and faithful yes, and to allow God to do the changing work, which God is very, very good at. Look, I grew up thinking that I had to escape. 
So when I moved my family, my wife and my two daughters back into the community that I grew up in, I immediately had the assumption that God wanted me to transform it. That's why I'm back to change it. However, I quickly learned that the biggest transformation was actually happening in my own family. And the largest transformation was probably happening in me. Mr. I'm ready to get out of here is now turned into Mr. You can pull me out of here if you try. Now, I learned this from my neighbors. And it's interesting. My neighbors taught me that unity could only happen in the middle of diversity. That my neighbors needed to think differently than me, that my neighbors to the right side of me who like to play cards and dominoes and drink 40 ounces on their porch, I had to understand that the way they lived was not wrong, it was different. And my neighbor on this side, who was an older woman, who was so nosy and knew my every move, knew my kids' names, knew what time I left for work, knew what time I came home, and knew my wife's name when I didn't even know hers, she lived differently. It was clear that unity without diversity was only uniformity. And so I learned that God's command was to become a part of exile. Listen, not to try to turn exile into my own version of Jerusalem. (laughs) But it's crazy. He goes on to say now. Not only do you need to build a house and live in it, but you need to plant gardens and eat what they produce. Now, this next letter, part of the letter is crazy. My community comprising of about approximately 60 square miles, not only lacked healthy food options, but also had no sit down restaurants. Now, I soon realized in order to follow this command of planting gardens and stuff that we were going to have to become gardeners. Now. You can only eat so many flaming hot Cheetos with meat and cheese and them little hug juices that don't have no juice in it. It's like food coloring and acid. <laughs> Gonna eat so much before there's a problem, y'all, right? And, and I'm saying, God, you want me to eat what's in my neighborhood? You want me dead in five years? <laughs> God says, no, think about what I said, plant garden. So I realized that we had to take command over what food was available in our community. That meant rather than eating only what was being produced, we planted our own gardens. Now, what's interesting is, if you ask me to do that, we'll still be hungry. (laughs) My thumb is not green at all, and anything that has green on it, if I touch it, it dies automatically. So, along with our neighbors, We had to come up with our own way of having gardens planted. So along with our neighbors, we planted what's called the Five Loaves Co-op, which meets weekly at our church. Now, at this co-op, we pool all our resources together, bring healthy food options to the community, and we all shop together at the church. Now, from this, also another group of residents partnered together with our church to open the Kusanya Cafe, a not-for-profit coffee shop in the community whose purpose is to serve as a gathering space with healthy food options in our own neighborhood. We began planting gardens. Initiatives like this eventually led to the opening of the first full-scale organic grocery store in our neighborhood in decades. 
Imagine this, Whole Foods, which initially moved in our neighborhood. Now, when they first came, everybody in the city screamed, gentrification! <laughs> However, what they didn't know was that we had already been planting gardens. We were well aware that Whole Foods was entering our community, so much so that our community decided the floor plans of the store, we decided the decor, we demanded local vendors' products be sold, we selected the community engagement personnel, and negotiated the lowering of their prices to represent our economic demographics. Gentrification who? But here's the best part to me. Because when you plant a garden, you get to decide what's growing. When it opened in September of 2017, it opened in Grand Inglewood style with a barbecue in the parking lot. <laughs> we had local vendors out there barbecuing and selling their products and lots and lots of line dancing. <laughs> now I want to help you understand something. None of this happened because of our church. However, also, none of it would have happened without our church. And this is what it means to plant gardens. It means to be involved in the process of what's available, not necessarily leading it. Also, this is why we must build houses in exile and live in them. Why? Because it's not until the injustices and issues directly affect us that we will ever take action or think we need to be involved in what's produced in our communities. When it doesn't affect you, you can ignore it. But when your family has to eat the flaming Hot Cheetos, you begin to ask questions about what can I plant? So if the church didn't make it happen, what is our part? Well, we don't build commercial buildings. We didn't have our own garden at the time, but we were involved in making sure residents knew how to eat what they bought. Check this out. No one will eat what they can't cook. So we hosted Cooking Matters classes and helped our church and community realize how to eat on a healthy, uh, to eat healthy food on a budget. That's what we could do. But it was about planting our own gardens. It was about being a part of what was produced. After I had built a house and settled down, but then it got interesting because the next verse said this. <laughs> Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Can I be honest with y'all for a second? Y'all mind if I be honest? Because sometimes preachers try to, you know, fluff it up. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't like this verse. <laughs> I was like, I was with you, Jeremiah, all the way up to this point. I was great until you start talking about my daughters. I was all good. I looked up at God and I said, God, are you serious? Marry my daughters off in exile, increase there? What, what? Have you seen the choices? <laughs> I mean, I looked out my window and I saw some guys standing in front of the liquor store with their pants pulled down, you know. And I was like, God, really? This is what you're asking me to do? So I cried to my wife about how unfair this was. It didn't make sense. And she smiled at me and just looked at me and said, you're so stupid. 
I'm like, oh, so I'm having a crisis of faith. The passage, I, I think it's my life passage, and I'm trying to figure this out, and you tell me I'm stupid? Okay, Miss Theologian, maybe since you've been to seminary and you can exegete the text so perfectly, why don't you tell me what it's trying to say? Why don't you fix it for me? She was giving me that Michelle face like. <laughs> she looked at me right in my eyes, and she said, stupid, you from Inglewood. Oh, yeah. And it was in that moment that I had an epiphany. Oh, yeah. I was standing outside with big old jeans on, Tim boots, Wu-Tang shirt, headphones this big, because back then it wasn't small, it was about big, right? With my backpack full of spray paint cans, and somebody's dad was like, really? But it made me realize that the same God who worked in my life, who helped me to become the man who's preaching in front of you right now, the same God who's been transforming lives since the beginning of time, the one who took David and reworked him, the one who took Moses and reworked him, the one who took all of the prophets and priests and made them who they are, is the same one working today. So if God says Mary, that means that there's somebody had, God has for us. But here's what the real kicker was. What I learned from my wife's statement was, if I'm really actually concerned about the crop of people that are available for my daughters, or if I'm really worried about the young people in my neighborhood, maybe I'll get out of my window talking about them and get on the corner talking to them. That's, it. That's where the transformation happened. I got it. I got it. If I want my daughters to find a good partner, then I need to be investing in some of these young people myself. See, if I live here, now I have a vested interest in how these young people turn out. Like, I don't know if my daughter's gonna choose a partner one day or not, somebody gonna have to be strong. <laughs> but I guarantee you I'll be involved in the process of making sure that there's a good crop for them to choose from. Because I will increase there and not decrease. So once I understood this, <laughs> the next part of the letter made perfect sense. Jeremiah goes on to say, the verse that we always quote, Seek the peace and welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. If it prospers, you too will prosper. It made perfect sense. When Inglewood does good, stupid, you do good. When Chicago does better, crazy boy, you do better. When your place begins to increase, you increase. No longer did I have to worry about whether I was doing good. I could turn my I into we. I could turn my me into us. I could go from individualistic thinking to communal thinking, knowing that I was a part of the community. This is why we build houses. This is why we settle down. This is why we plant gardens. This is why we increase there and do not decrease. Because as our place prospers, we prosper. It does not work the other way around. You can prosper and your neighbors not prosper. But if you seek the prospering of your neighbor and your neighbor begins to prosper, then you too prosper because you live in the same place. It made sense. We need to care about exile because when exile does well, we do well. 
Once my family got to know our neighbors and decided to make ourselves at home, we felt safer. Once our congregation helped start the co-op and cafe in our neighborhood, we received healthy food. Once I recognized my responsibility to the young people in my community, I benefit from their creativity, their joy, their hopefulness, going to their graduations when they're the first ones to graduate from college in their family. In exile, God is teaching us that our future is intimately tied to those around us. When one suffers, we all suffer. When one prospers, we all prosper. And so my prayer for you is that you will recognize that every decision you make, every place that you go, where you eat, where you buy, where you send your children, everything you do has an effect on your neighbor. This letter changes our concerns and now puts at the center of our concerns where God is leading us. Which means, my fellow exiles, there are no God-forsaken places, just church-forsaken. God has commanded us to love all places, but not from a distance, y'all, from within. Therefore, I close my letter with a challenge to each of you. This letter challenges you to stop only asking God what you are to do and begin asking God where you are to go. I'm asking you to stop asking what you can do to change the world and start asking where in the world you might be changed the most. I want you to stop asking what will make the biggest impact on the world and start asking where the biggest impact could be made on you. I will stop asking what is the most comfortable fit for me and my family and start asking God where you can go to be the most uncomfortable. For nowhere in scripture has God ever called us to be comfortable. Lastly, as I close this letter, my fellow exiles, wherever God places you, Will you stop only asking God what you must do to be successful and start asking where you can go to be more faithful? For God never told us to be successful. God has only asked us to be faithful. But here's the question. Can you be faithful? Even when the only thing changing is you. If you can be faithful when what you thought was going to happen isn't happening, when what you prayed for to happen isn't happening, but you can do the self-introspection of yourself and see what God is actually doing, that's the definition of faithfulness. So here's my challenge to you. Build a house. Live in it. Settle down. Not for the purpose of changing, but for the purpose of being faithful. Plant gardens and eat what they produce, because once it matters to you, that's when you begin your action steps. Increase. Do not decrease. Multiply there. God says, have an exilic family and let your exilic family have exilic children. And let those exilic children produce exilic grandchildren. Increase there. Do not decrease. And lastly, seek the peace and welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray 
to the Lord on its behalf. For when D.C. prospers, you too will prosper. Signing off your fellow exile. Pastor Jay, grace and peace. Let's pray together. Your word is rich, God, and very applicable for our lives today. And as we read Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, God, let us be reminded that God is still writing to us today. May we remember that we have been called to be the church, to root ourselves in our communities and to seek the peace and welfare of where you've placed us. May the power of God, the love of God, and the peace of God lead us to the purposes of God. In Jesus' name, amen.